You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week we'll be hearing why one professor thinks drug testing for athletes is illogical and immoral. A lot of uh, money spent unnecessarily and the fun of sport is spoiled. I don't see any need for it because there's no evidence to support the view. The possibility of a doctor's strike in the UK has come up for the first time since 1975. The BMA is currently polling to see if it will go ahead. There's been a lot of debate about whether doctors should do it, but less about the practicalities of striking whilst maintaining patient safety. Ed Davies, careers editor for the BMJ, asked the BMA about that and more. Uh, I'm here with Dr Mark Porter, chair of the BMA's consultants committee. Uh, and we're here to talk about the pensions questions at the moment and strikes and industrial action and what's going on. So I suppose first up, bring us up to date with how we've reached this point up to the ballot going out. It's not a place anybody, any of us had ever expected to find ourselves. Doctors taking industrial action, it's a rare thing to debate. It's a rarer thing to, to look at in this country. But fundamentally, the reason we're here is that we have a profound disagreement with what the government is doing to doctors' pensions, but of course also NHS pensions in general. And we found that they will not engage with us in having sensible discussions about how to resolve what they say are the problems. We would like to negotiate with them. They won't negotiate without preconditions. We'd like to talk with them about the structure of pension schemes. They won't do this. They say what it has to be, and they ask us to negotiate around the margins. And fundamentally, they simply published the agreement, told everybody it's an agreement, not asked us, and we don't think that that's reasonable, and specifically, our members have told us that that is not reasonable. Okay, and initially you went to the membership and said, do you want a, a vote on this? That's right. And now you've come to the ballot. Talk us through the actual the ballot, what's on it, what the different options mean. This is a, a legal ballot, so it is different to the survey we had in January. Without the ballot, you can't lawfully call industrial action. It's not possible for doctors to simply walk off the job and leave patients untreated when they come in as emergencies. Um, it's legally dubious. It's certainly ethically wrong. Our duties as a doctor are maintained whether we're on strike or not. And so what we've done is prepared a recommendation about urgent and emergency care so that on a day of industrial action, doctors will be prepared to provide urgent and emergency care for any patients who need it. And patient safety is an important priority there. But in order to support urgent emergency care only, we have to have a yes, yes to the two questions on the ballot paper. And we need this to give us the flexibility to be able to call industrial action that is a little bit complicated because of our concern for patient safety. The urgent and emergency care only, obviously for an A&E consultant that's going to be very different from a, a dermatologist. Is there any sort of specific guidance by specialty that you can give? We've considered this and what we decided is that it's not possible for the BMA as a professional association to write the handbook as to how the NHS should run on such a day. These decisions should be down to the senior doctors who are looking after patients uh, anyway. They are the sort of decisions that we face all the time. When I'm on call myself I have to face decisions all day about whether things are urgent and need doing there and then, whether they can be safely put off a few hours and we schedule them for a little bit later, or indeed whether they can be safely put off till tomorrow. So we're asking them to use their normal medical common sense to decide whether things can safely be postponed. One of the key things about making sure that this action doesn't impact on patients too much is to have advanced planning. So, for example, where we have elective operating lists, it would make sense, as has been done in previous disputes, 
to discuss with management about the number of elective lists that are running and reduce or cancel or postpone the elective work that's going to be happening. Similarly for many outpatient clinics, for procedural lists and quite a lot of the elective activity in hospitals. In general practice, uh, appointment systems which are based on uh, being able to just uh, being able to book in to see a general practitioner. I know that many GPs, uh, surgeries and practices are expecting not to run those appointment systems on the day. And there are all sorts of ways in which people can take part in planning that will help patients uh, to uh, understand what's going to be happening on the day. And it's really important, I think, to cooperate uh, with any planning efforts that are going on like that. The point you raise about some members uh, working more in the emergency field is a very good one. But what's important here is not so much whether every doctor can withdraw their labour on the day. What's important here is that the medical profession as a whole is, um, has solidarity with itself, that we stand together in offering this model of care to patients on the day and not the model of the care that the government would like us to do. And in terms of, sort of outside regulation and things like that, the, the GMC, would they have any input as to, you know, if I were to opt out of something and a patient complained, would you be answerable in the same way? I mean, you say sort of using the same processes to work through what is and isn't urgent. Yes. Um, the key thing to remember here is that we're both doctors um, uh, and employees. And we can take industrial action, which is a regulated breach of contract, from our jobs, but we can never not be doctors. And we're always regulated by the GMC. So we've had a number of discussions with the GMC about the ethics of doctors taking industrial action. And they agree with us that it is perfectly morally and ethically reasonable for a doctor to take industrial action as long as they remember the duties of a doctor, which is putting the interests of patients first where they need urgent and emergency care. Now, it's almost inevitable, well, it is inevitable, that some patients are going to be inconvenienced by the action that we do. Some of them may complain to the GMC, but doctors should be assured that if they act ethically and in accordance with the duties of a doctor, the GMC will not come down on them for that. One of the other groups that sort of crops up in the, these conversations is the sort of the insurers and the indemnifiers. This may be a question for them rather than you, I don't know. Um, but would it at all infect doctors' insurance and indemnity? It, it's very unlikely to do so. We've had uh, some discussions with some of the medical defence organisations, of course. And, and probably the best way to explain it is it's a little bit similar to working past the end of your shift or to um, coming in when you're not on duty or in some way going on beyond your normal, um, you know, the normal parameters of your job. In exactly the same way as they cover you for your professional roles rather than our paid jobs, it happens on this day. And in terms of the, the relationship with patients as well that, that doctors have and some of the PR issues around it and things, obviously in the national press mm. you've got two sides of the argument going on at the moment. How would you recommend doctors cope with that side of things? By talking to their patients when asked, basically representing to patients that we're not uh, people who are taking this action lightly. I think doctors need to know that, of course, the British Medical Association has uh, something of a, uh, of a public relations campaign planned with newspaper adverts and being able to get information over to patients about why we're taking this action. But what we're hoping is that sense will prevail uh, and that the NHS will actually plan for this action by doctors by not getting everybody in. Right. And in terms of repercussions of a, a day of action itself, of sort of very basic stuff, pay, patient list, things like that? The issue about losing pay 
is one which is legally very straightforward, but practically can be applied differently. Legally, the employer is um, entitled to withhold pay for a day of industrial action, whether or not the uh, employee provides any service at all, and they can decline part service in in um, completion of the contract. So it's really up to the employer. In the past, on days of industrial action, many employers, if not most of them, have actually paid their staff. If I'm listening to this and I'm not a member of the BMA, what's my position, or is that something you'd rather not talk about? Of course, we should all be members of the BMA. But what, what, would, what would be the situation yeah. there? Well, we cannot give advice to people who are not members of the BMA. However, there are two things, probably two top-line messages, that I think it's important for people to know about. One is that it's possible to join the BMA, of course, even now. Uh, it's probably too late to be able to receive a ballot paper, although I know that some people have joined the BMA during this balloting process in order to receive ballot papers. The other thing is that um, a person who is not a member of a trades union can, under certain circumstances, take part in industrial action lawfully. Now, I can't give people individual advice on this, um, but it is accepted legally that if there is a, uh, if there is a protected and properly organised piece of industrial action, somebody who's affected by that dispute but not a member of a union can, under some circumstances, lawfully take part in it, and people may want to consider that. And there's a head-to-head on the proposed strikes and lots of rapid responses now available on bmj.com. Now, Richard Hurley finds out about one professor's poor opinion of drug testing in athletics. Well, here's a controversial view. With just over two months until the opening of the London Olympic Games, I'm joined on the phone today by uh, Emeritus Professor of Dermatology in Newcastle, Sam Schuster, um, who's called for an end to anti-doping testing of athletes, which he calls illogical and immoral. Um, Professor Schuster, could you explain why you're so exercised about this matter? Well, yes, I, I find it rather horrific that people are tested for what is something that's quite unnecessary and are banned when, that un, uh, when certain substances are found on, uh, that they've taken and uh, maybe banned uh, for life and promising athletes are wasted and there's a, a lot of uh, money spent unnecessarily and the fun of, spoil, of sport is spoiled. I don't see any need for it because there's no evidence to support the view. Okay. I mean, could you go into a little more detail then about why you think the, the current policy is illogical and, immor- and immoral? The first thing is that taking of drugs is no different from what are normal proceedings in sport. Uh, For example, if you're training, you can use uh, special equipment, you can have your own sports psychologist, you can have physiologists and they'll fix electrodes on you and optimize your performance. They can work out the snags of your, the people you're up against and how to compete with them. All these things done quite covertly. Or again, you can train at altitude uh, um, in order to increase your um, hemopuritin, uh, um, but you can't take a drug, which uh, hemopuritin, which achieves the same effect. What's the difference? I see no difference between what sportsmen and athletes normally do in training uh, and the taking of drugs. And that's really the first thing. The uh, idea that um, 
taking drugs is cheating um, really can't be substantiated because these training methods are equally covert. And if being covert is the problem, well, that's simple. Make the drugs open and they're no longer covert. I mean, yeah, I, I saw that you say, you say in your in your article that sports drugs, the alleged risks of which have been dragged in to bolster a weak case. Yeah. But, um, I mean, I was wondering, we know that professional athletes are under absolutely extraordinary pressure to achieve. Are you sure you can downplay these risks to that extent? Wouldn't these people do almost anything to win? Absolutely, and they're going to overdose and they may cause some damage. But really, the... Proof of damage isn't very great, you know. Um, uh, it's really assumed rather than having been established. And because sportsmen overdo it, as I say, with mountaineering, and you know, uh, several of them have come to grief again on Everest, you can't ban an activity because it's unsafe, and you will not be able to prevent the sportsmen from overdoing it. They've over-exercised and killed themselves. Uh, this is not an argument for banning drugs. It's an argument for saying, no, come off it, be sensible, don't overdo it. Mountaineering's unsafe, but you're not going to ban climbing mountains just because it's unsafe. The, the idea that uh, uh, you've got to ban drugs uh, by um, taking by sportsmen because uh, of potential risk from overdoses and absurdity. It's uh, brought in, really, I suspect, to bolster up a weak argument. You might just as well say that if you're caught over-drinking in a pub, you're going to be banned for life for playing on the darts. It's an absurdity. I mean, it's interesting that... Uh if there's very little proof that the, that the drugs are effective. And I think you say in your, in your piece that, uh, you know, they may be responsible for a difference in performance of less than 1% or something like that. Yeah. It's interesting that if that's the case, that athletes continue to take them and doctors prescribe them or... Yeah, well, it is interesting. Drugs such as steroids have effects. And no question of the profound effects of steroids on muscles and likewise growth hormone. But it's been assumed from that 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 will necessarily make you better at winning a race. You might find an effect on um, someone taking up sports for a bit of pleasure, but they're at the lower end of the dose-response curve, and we know the effect of drugs just... Uh, tails off at the flat part on top. Coming back to uh, about how it's forbidden to take erythropoietin, but it's okay to um, to sleep in a low oxygen tent, for example. Are you able to comment on how such decisions are reached? No, I, I really don't know how the, that particular decision has been reached. It, it, it is such an absurd an absurdity, it smacks of a, a political committee's decision with, with uh, the, the proverbial camel. It, it is extraordinary. If, if you can um, sleep in a, in, a, in a low oxygen tent or if you can afford money to train at altitude, then why not simply take the erythropoietin? I don't see the difference. But one is banned, uh, the taking of the drug, but not the others. And that really underlines the illogicality of the whole argument.
Another interesting point you make in your piece, I think, is um, uh, you talk about the confusion between um, sort of concepts of fairness and cheating. Yep. Um, could, could you explain that in a little bit more detail for people listening? There's a big muddle about what is fair and what is not and what is cheating and what is not. And it's considered that if you have outside uh, support, say, from uh, any source... This is, in a way, unfair. But uh, that is equated with cheating, which is something quite different. Cheating is if you are a fencer and, and have a phony electronic signal on your equipment, as one Russian did some Olympics ago, or you trip someone up when you're running deliberately. That's cheating. But um, using various other methods available to you uh, which are considered unfair, are something quite different. And it's something that athletes do all the time. They will do anything, and they should do anything, to, to make the outcome better. And in any case, what is fair about genetic uh, superiority or ability? Some people have a greater ability to run faster. Some people are taller and much better at volleyball. Well, if um, if uh, to achieve fairness is your objective and uh, the level playing field of that, well, then you'd have to say that if you are genetically able or physically able to run faster, you, you should be permitted less training to be fair or to be extremely fair we go one step even further and say okay you go to the olympics and regardless you're going to um, go into a hundred meter dash or the 1500 meters at random because in order to have fairness the concept of fairness has no place whatsoever in sport and it's allied too closely to the converse of cheating Yes, I very much like the line in your piece where you said fairness is for the level playing field of the looking glass world, where the, yes. where the faster you can run, the less you're allowed to train. I think that <laughs> sums up that argument very well. If that's whetted your appetite for a more sporting pharmacology, there's a feature by Kirsten Patrick on the new biological passport for athletes, the World Anti-Doping Committee's latest attempt to curb banned drug use. That article and more is available on bmj.com and through our new Olympics portal, bmj.com slash olympics. That's all for this week. Next week we'll hear from a mother who lost her son to medical error and what doctors should do if they find themselves in that situation. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.